Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. My guest today is Kristen Hawley, a fellow Substack writer who publishes Expedite, a newsletter about restaurant technology. If you follow Boss Barista closely, you likely remember that Kristen had a guest post on the newsletter a few weeks ago, and we were both Substack food fellows in 2022. Kristen has been writing about the intersection of restaurants and technology for over a decade, And in this episode, we talk about the unearthed potential and sometimes looming danger of technology in the food sector. We talk about how many of the high-profile examples we've seen of tech disrupting established industries are sometimes instigated by outside aggravators, people who think they can fix non-existent problems or fail to understand the industry they seek to improve. But we also talk about how technology can work with and within the restaurant world if we put technology in the hands of people who understand their industries best. Here's Kristen. Kristen, I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself. Sure. I am Kristen Hawley. I'm a freelance journalist and the founder of Expedite, which is a newsletter about restaurant technology and the future of hospitality. Did you grow up with coffee in your life? Nope. Not at all. (laughs) No, my parents did not drink coffee. And I grew up in the 90s, like right when like coffee house culture was sort of finally making its way to my tiny Pennsylvania suburb. So I would go listen to live music and drink steamed milk with vanilla syrup. That's so wholesome. I know. I know. I didn't have coffee until I went to college in New York City, and then it all changed. <laughs> You're not a coffee professional, and I know a lot of coffee professionals have these like aha moments that like convince them that this is the thing that they want to do. But because you're kind of outside that industry, I wonder, do you have a moment where like coffee really made an impact in your life? I think it was more that I was a young journalist living in New York and I had a tiny apartment with four roommates and coffee shops became my third place and restaurants became my third place. But, you know, I I lived in Brooklyn and they were popping up and I was like, oh, these are great places to hang out. So the space came first and then the coffee came second. And then it sort of, you know, I, we, we, we grew together. I moved to San Francisco in 2009, and that's sort of when it really took off for me because it was everywhere here and the culture had changed again. But it still was about places and time, not necessarily the, the ritual of coffee. 
How did you become interested in restaurant technology? So I started working in magazines in New York in on the food desk and doing recipes and food culture and restaurant culture and restaurant news. And I loved it. And it was amazing. And I got laid off in the recession in 2009 with most of the magazine industry. And when I moved to California, I started working in technology uh, and covering the tech industry. And I realized how much I missed food and restaurants. So I decided to sort of smash them together and create my own beat as a freelancer, going very, very deep on the then emerging business of restaurant technology 10 years ago. And it has since obviously matured very quickly and changed very quickly. But the big thing for me was that I noticed culturally a big difference in the hospitality business in tech-centric San Francisco versus New York City, which is more of a hospitality town. And there was a ton of friction between, I would say, diner expectations in San Francisco around technology, around what people wanted, around what they expected because they work in this forward-looking industry versus how the restaurants viewed how they should be serving clients. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was just like <laughs> in 2000 in 2010 in San Francisco, there was a real sense that people that worked in technology were changing the world. For for good and for bad. And I think that just like sociologically that was so fascinating to me because suddenly I ca- I came from an industry where you're like browbeaten into submission as an assistant and you're working in magazines and editorial. And suddenly I was in this place where my peers had power and control and they were doing interesting things and they had all these ideas about how things should work. And some of that was really, really great. And some of that was really terrible. And so that's sort of where I landed was in this this interesting spot where I was chronicling what people expected in the tech industry from from the restaurant industry and what they were getting and sort of how that that played out. That's a really interesting tension, like what people expected versus what people were getting. And I wonder in those early kind of nascent like 2009, 2010 years where I would agree, like technology just seemed really, really hopeful. I moved to San Francisco in 2015. And I feel like I just saw like the very end of like the rose tinted glasses on the p- potential of technology. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to say that it's not, there's not a lot of potential there specifically, but I think people were starting to question more the like Google bus or like free meals at work kind of like uh, rhetoric. Yeah. Right. Like I feel like I saw, I started to see kind of that, that era of technology in San Francisco, but I wonder from what you were observing kind of in like 2010, like where did those expectations misalign? <laughs> there's a, there's a negative there's a negative here and that is that that a lot of I don't want to generalize but I'm going to a lot of people that worked in the tech industry at the time felt they knew better and that worked in I think that that's true in some industries like certainly in the technology industry like you know there was a lot of like this is better this is better this is better you keep pushing forward and innovating and changing and it's accepted but where that did not work here was when you had people who enjoyed restaurants and had the resources to really enjoy restaurants. And therefore, they believed that they knew better than hospitality professionals who have been doing this their whole life. And that's when things started to get a little spicy, probably around the time that you mentioned. 
because there was a lot of like, you're doing it wrong and I can fix it and I'm going to fix it right. for you. I'm going to optimize right. it. I'm going to make it better, faster, stronger, whatever. And I'm going to make money doing it. And you might make money, but whatever. I'm going to I'm going to make money. So it seems like that's probably when like this. I don't I mean, I, I, I can't say this for certain because I haven't followed it as closely as you have. But I have to imagine that's like the time of like, we're going to disrupt XYZ industry rhetoric started to really come in. And it's like, but how and why and what do you really know about this? To what end? Right. Yeah, it's Uber. And there's no yeah. better example than this. And there are so many ways that it's parallel to what we've seen in hospitality. Because it is it is like a little bit of a hospitality company, right? So they that company was disrupting the established taxi industry. And whether you believe that the way that the, that the taxi establishment is good or bad, you know, like they decided they saw a weakness. They saw an opportunity to improve. And they saw an opportunity to make money. And that was disruption for the sake of disruption. Like, yes, we can all get to the airport easier now, right? Like, that's great. But it flipped this entire industry on its head because they could. And then, you know, they asked for forgiveness, not permission, when they were breaking laws and and doing things. And then suddenly it was so well-funded and grew so quickly and was so big that it just became this monster, elephant, huge presence that suddenly couldn't go away. Right. And so things had to change around, around Uber, especially in this town where the taxi industry was like terrible. You could never get a cab. I understand why it started here, (laughs) but it's, it was that it was like, we can completely shake this up and change this business and make it different. We can make a ton of money. I don't care who we're going to step on on the way up. My way is better. Get out of the way. Right. And now we're at this moment with Uber where like ride sharing apps are now the same, if not more money than they were when they were, quote unquote, disrupting the taxi industry. Like it seems like Uber tried to disrupt an industry and then seemingly broke it irrevocably. Like like we can't go backwards now. You cannot go backwards. And I mean, there's a lot of parallels in my world. I cover restaurant technology of which the delivery business is a big part and the, the way that it has changed the labor model, the way that it has changed diner and consumer expectations about speed and service and what you are owed and what you like have to deal with versus don't have to deal with. No, you can't go back. It's You can't erase it. It's done. Now there's legislation. Now there are rules and regulations that are, are baking this contractor model of service into the future of work in America. Hard stop. So with these kind of caveats in mind, I understand why people are generally resistant to technological advances. And especially in the coffee industry, we pride ourselves almost on being lo-fi. Like things are handmade, things are artisanal, things require like a really specific skill set. And I see this really interesting tension between automation and what the role of somebody behind the bar is. And I imagine that tension also exists in the hospitality industry. So I was wondering if we can maybe talk a little bit about like, how do we, this may be a big question we'll have to break down a little bit, but like, how do we kind of start to think about technology as a way of helping us versus hindering us, if that makes sense. So again, maybe yeah. we have to break this down a little bit. But like, I imagine that tension exists in the restaurant industry too. 
100%. And I think that there's the thing to, that's important to remember is that this is a spectrum. It's not a switch. So it's not like I have, I'm going to, you, you're going to flip a switch and suddenly become a, a tech conglomerate like that's evil and ro like roboticized. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of room to sort of incrementally improve or change or help the hospitality experience. You know, for all of the bad stuff I just said, I'm extremely pro-technology and very excited about its promise. And the thing about it is like in an, in an artisanal industry, if you're cooking, if you're making coffee, you don't have to you don't have to replace that with tech because it's more efficient. Like, is it? Yeah. Like there's a, there's a robot coffee place in the airport. Cause like you're in the airport <laughs> and, right. and that's, it's, it's fine. Great. Like I don't want that at my, on my, in my, the corner of my neighborhood. That's two extremely, extremely different use cases. So I think that with, by writing off, tech as something evil, as something that's coming for jobs, as something that's coming to hurt the business, the hospitality industry is, you know, shooting itself in the foot because there is a, a lot, a lot of small incremental processes that can be automated back office stuff. There's a lot that can be improved using technology, like tech tools, like <laughs> Unlike what we've been told to believe by the people that build these things, you don't have to optimize every single thing to make it profitable and better. That's that's not the that's not the goal. I think I don't know if I want to get into like funding and money and scale, but the, those businesses do make more money. So if that's the end goal, like sure, but I don't think that technology will erase the art and the craft of hospitality. How do you think technology has changed the way consumers expect to get food items? Because I think I think we're like a little we're maybe like two steps behind when I think about coffee because I think it's it's understandable that people maybe want that convenience of being able to order a meal and have it delivered to their house, but I still think there's like one step behind in coffee where people are like, "Oh, okay. I understand that the best quality coffee I might need to go to." Mm. But I I I wonder I wonder if that's going to change because we've seen dining expectations change so swiftly. And if if it, if it follows what's happened in restaurants, I think you're just going to see that behavior become more extreme. So going will become more of an experience, like more of an event. Like it's not just like I'm going to go. I've, there's a great place around the corner from from me in San Francisco that I go to and I get a, you know, my latte super fast and I come home and I feel like maybe that maybe that will go away. Maybe it becomes more, again, like experiential versus convenience. Like, like a, like any, any experience has to offer more. We were just talking, I was just in Japan and everything is savored and very like slow and rigorous and intentional. Um, and I don't see that here in San Francisco and I'm sure that's the cultural thing, but that was a real eye opener for me in terms of what coffee could offer on the not experience, not the, on the not convenience side. Right. That's a good point. Now that I think about it too, you're right. Like that, that experience doesn't really exist in the United States, except for maybe like a handful of like very small coffee shops. But even then I have to imagine that almost can't exist here unless you have a ton of money <laughs> because yeah, 
coffee shops are like live and die by like even I would argue maybe even smaller margins than restaurants. Like the cost of goods is super high. Inflation has obviously affected coffee up like like it has any other industry. But like I've never worked at a coffee shop where like we didn't live and die by like a morning rush. Like if the hours between eight and ten were not busy, like you were screwed. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that there's something to be said about like people are starting to like go into these extremes either like you're ordering something on your phone and it gets delivered to you or you're going to a restaurant for like a full-fledged experience and there's not a lot of like middle ground i used to work at a restaurant that was very much like an all-day like casual neighborhood joint and then within months of covid it was gone and i have Mm -hmm. to imagine even if it stayed open during covid like it would still be in jeopardy because it didn't exist on that one spectrum or the other not to say that those are good or bad like you said getting to these extremes is actually kind of scary Mm -hmm. but I wonder like if that's even I I even wonder what that spectrum looks like in coffee like it seems ridiculous to me that I would go on my phone and order a coffee and have it delivered to me but maybe maybe I'm just being silly (laughs) thinking that that's ridiculous I mean it sounds ridiculous to me too but I can't really pinpoint why because I I order groceries on my phone and I order like a solo dinner on my phone. So, yeah. Right. And like I would order coffee maybe on my phone to go pick up, but the idea that mm-hmm. someone would like go to a coffee shop, get my order, go to my house and deliver it seems bonkers to me. And maybe it's because this is another thing I've noticed that in in working in a restaurant versus working in a coffee shop, and maybe this maybe this serves us better than I think it does because it's kind of annoying sometimes, but people are so particular about their coffee. Mm-hmm. And as a barista, I'd be like, oh my God, like get over it, just drink it. Not to say that like people don't deserve to get exactly what they want. They do, but it's like, you know, like you're working behind the bar. You're like, I promise this is good. Please don't put milk and sugar in it. Um, uh-huh. But maybe that's maybe that's part of the experience of, of maybe that's the thing that will help save coffee shops not to not save like they're not they're not in danger right now but but like maybe that's part of the experience and maybe that's why this idea of coffee will always have some sort of like lo-fi kind of like current running through it is because we really want to have coffee the way that we want it that's interesting that's an interesting point i was talking about being a magazine assistant there was an art director famous for giving her assistant a pantone chip to take to the coffee shop to make sure that she got the right amount of milk in it. That's so, wild. Yeah, true story. 100% true. I no, I mean I've had I've had multiple bizarre experiences with customers. I had one customer, I worked at this coffee shop in New York in Times Square. Super busy, we were always slammed. She would only order coffee if either myself or another barista were pouring drinks. And I was like, that's a level that like does not make sense. Like yeah. there's no there's no difference between all the other. There were like nine or ten of us behind the bar. But it was really a big differentiator for her. We would see her walk in. And if I was on register or the other barista wasn't there, she'd just leave. Wow. That's I know. Crazy. So I, I so I wonder. And, and like I said, like I think for a long time. In coffee, we've been hindered by this idea that people really want coffee their way. And maybe this can help transition us into how consumers have been, how we can learn more about what our consumers want with technology. But in coffee, we have, I think, for so long been like, please try this without milk or sugar because it's really good. Or please try this espresso without 
adding like three tablespoons of sugar. But in a way, because people feel so closely personally tied to their coffee, like that that tie might never be severed and it actually keeps us closer to like the experiences and shops that we love. I think that that's a, I think that I think that that is an extremely possible and also best case scenario. Right, that is best case. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but but then again, but then it also speaks to this idea that like maybe we really don't know that much about our customers. So I wonder as a person who's written about restaurant technology, like how have you seen technology inform restaurant and hospitality businesses about what their consumers actually want? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest changes I've seen like hard stop is the evolution of of loyalty and that has happened because instead of you know buy 10 get one free there's so much more information available to restaurants and hospitality businesses about what their customers are ordering just by virtue of the fact that we pay more with credit cards right like there's just it it, it is because we use computers and because we use our phones to pay and because we order on an app or we order online to pick up or just we pay with the same card every day, you can learn so much more about somebody and what they like and what they expect. And then you can use technological tools to apply that in smart ways. And that is, that's the evolution of the loyalty business. So it's all about giving people what they want, not necessarily like, a spray and pray one size fits all discount offer um, that will just get people in the door. So there's been huge, huge steps in that arena. Even in like the last three years, I would say like big, big, big changes. What are some of those changes? Because I think, again, going back to the idea that coffee is is lo-fi, like I just went to a coffee shop and they gave me a punch card and I was like, please don't give me this. I don't want it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. I can't believe that. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> that they, they gave me a punch card or that I didn't want it? That they gave you one, that people are still yeah. handing them out. Oh, yeah. No, with 100%. Like, I, I haven't seen a coffee shop utilizing, and, and this is maybe just like, I go to like three coffee shops in my neighborhood, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen a coffee shop utilizing a loyalty program that involves technology at all. Mm, it might They're run probably, in the background. Say that again. That's, it might run in the background. You know, it might be. That's true. It might be something. So that's that is, I would say, one of the big changes. So you don't necessarily have to be an active like sign up here, log in here, participant in order to participate in what would be considered a loyalty program because it could just be targeted marketing campaigns. You know, like they know who you are because of how you pay and how you order. Therefore, they can send you an email that they know that you'll respond to respond to it be interested in not respond to the email but they can send an offer that they know that you might like because of your order history or what time you come in or how many days of the week or what days of the week how if you come in three days a week how can we make you come in four how can we bring you back twice in one day there's things like that that happen without the customer necessarily knowing which sounds really creepy. It does. But it, <laughs> there's a real creep factor. There's a real creep factor that I would say like the loyalty industry at large is very cognizant of. And because if you if you like creep someone out too much, that's it, the relationship is over. But I would say like another another huge change is that 
you don't have to be an active participant. You don't necessarily have to sign up to earn points. There's, no one wants to do that, you know, like no one's doing that. So that is, well, that's not true. Like every Starbucks customer is doing that. But otherwise, you're probably not going to, you know, sign up for some one-off program to earn points or whatever for buying something. I like this idea that like we can learn about ways to give people what they want through their consuming habits. Like you said, it is a little bit creepy, but like, you know, I look when I was, you know, a barista, I would look at square and be like, how many lattes did we sell? How many, what time of day do we sell lattes? Like maybe Mm -hmm. not specifically to the people that were buying them, but I would 100% analyze like what are our consumer habits? Or, you know, I would look at like, I would I would I would do this a lot. This is really nerdy. I would track the temperature versus like when like the tipping point was of like Oh, no, that's hot I, and cold. Yeah. So technology can do that for you. I yeah, mean talk that's about that. that's baked right in. So those those kinds of tools that it's I mean people people the companies will call it AI. Sometimes it's AI, sometimes it's not. Can take all of those things into consideration. The traffic, traffic patterns. Like like how it how is traffic backed up? Are people running late? Is it raining? Is it snowing? Is school closed? Like all of those things can be taken into account when you're analyzing patterns of behavior. You know, if if it's going to be a snow day, like you can set up a, a marketing campaign ahead of time that's like speaks to that. You know, people are home. They're not going to work. You know, like maybe the roads are bad. Maybe everybody's running late. Everybody was delayed by three hours, whatever it is. All of those things Anything that you have on your phone or a computer can be, that information can be pulled right in to some, so so like a a good, a good loyalty program, a good point of sale, a good, any sort of restaurant management system, and you can optimize based on it. I think as you were saying this, one of the things I wrote down was these programs can help increase foot traffic. And I think one of the reasons that I have seen arguments against automation or technology and coffee is that there's this idea that like that, that technology like replaces people and that can happen I, I i fundamentally believe that there are people who who view technology as a replacement for labor those people mm-hmm. exist we've seen them in other industries mm-hmm. that being said that's not about the technology that's about the person who's thinking that way so then when i think about technology as a way to do something more to expand. I think of like, okay, like if I operate a small little coffee shop and I'm thinking about like robot baristas to replace labor, like that's the wrong question. What I should be asking is like, I have people working. How do I increase foot traffic? How do I get people in the door? Like how can technology help me do that? So not only are the people that I'm employing making more money, but like I can hire more people. I can expand. And I'm always interested in that that tension of like people who view technology as a one-to-one replacement for people, which again, I think is a very warranted fear because we see people do it Mm -hmm. versus technology as a way to expand, to do more. And not necessarily that expansion is growth because I think growth is also kind of a funny topic too, but just to like opt, like be better at their business. Yeah. Well, I, so think about the time that you, the amount of time that you personally spent like digging through Square, like nerding out on stuff like that, that you don't have to spend that time anymore. You know, you're a manager, you're an owner. You can automate that. 
just by using the tools that you have because you're using a point of sale system. And that means that you're not in the back office. You're up front. You're talking to people. You're engaging. You're doing all the things that make an in-person business so hospitable. And that's the big pitch from tech companies. Like they can automate the stuff that takes the most time and takes the time away from doing the actual thing that you're supposed to do and that you want to do and that builds a good business, whether that's growth or just engagement. So that is, that's, that's the best application. And I'm not talking about robots. Like I'm just, I'm straight up just talking about like payroll. I don't know, just all of the stuff that takes the time. So I was just talking to someone this morning who her company builds text message based training for employees at restaurants, big restaurant concepts. And she was saying that the kind of automation that that involves gets a manager out of the back office because they're not translating manuals into Spanish and they're not having to do like so much one-on-one coaching. And it just, there's so many tiny pieces of automation that are not necessarily robotics that takes so much time away from hospitality that, that tech, like it, it works, it works and it's available. And if, again, going back to the beginning of the conversation, if, if, people are resistant to use it just for the sake of like that it's automation or AI or whatever it is, then really you're just wasting time on stuff that you don't need to be wasting time on unless you really, really enjoy paperwork, in which case like, great. I feel like, so we talked a little bit about how automation can be used kind of on the consumer end and thinking more about people who are decision makers, not necessarily looking at technology as like a replacement for labor, but like using it as an actual powerful tool to Mm -hmm. expand and do more. And you were even saying that like technology, like businesses often sell themselves as that, that you can interact with customers more. You can offer more of this. You can offer more of that. And I wonder on the like product development side or like the technology side, do you think technology companies always understand that? Because I think there's something to be said for technology companies trying to innovate on something that maybe didn't need innovating, or they try to innovate in a way where they're like, wow, look at this, this is better. But it's it, it, it reflects a deep misunderstanding of the industry that they're trying to be part of. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And this goes back to what I was talking about in the very beginning and, and what the genesis of my work was, which was this massive friction and the like, I know better than you attitude. So there is nothing that gets me going more than somebody who starts a restaurant technology company because they want something. And we see this all the time. It's, I'm going to do a reservations bot. I'm going to do like a members only like, like club to sell bookings to Carbone in New York City. I'm going to build something so I don't have to sit and wait for the check. That is always the wrong idea. It never works. It never works. Maybe it works out short term. Maybe you get like a small acquisition, but you probably are going to look like a douchebag and you're going to piss off the industry that you are alleging to help. That's like, that's one extreme. And I think that that is, I see less of that. I see less of that now. I see a lot more of people like yourself with backgrounds in hospitality that have seen problems and because of their other life experience, understand that there are gaps that can be plugged 
by tech. And it is very clear to me as someone who watches the industry very closely, the difference between a company that was founded by people who know what they're talking about, or people who at least listened to the people that know what they're talking about before they built, before they iterated, versus people who see or perceive a problem from the outside that's potentially not an actual problem. Restaurants get pitched on new tech, and I don't know how coffee is, but restaurants get probably like five or six, at least pitches a week. I worked closely with a restaurant in San Francisco on something not tech related. And I would be, I would kind of go, I would go there during lunch hour. Occasionally they were not in service and <laughs> like reps for tech companies would knock on the door and try to sell them on some, some thing that would help their bottom line. And it was wild. And I said, does this happen every day? And they said, every day in this town. So I, from the outside, I see the the bad actors not surviving, but that doesn't mean that they're not getting some kind of traction. And that doesn't mean that they're not inconveniencing hospitality business owners along the way. Right. And then there's this idea, too, of like technology coming in and trying to almost buy our trust and failing at it because mm-hmm. we don't get the whole picture. I mentioned a company to you before we started recording. I'm not going to name them on this, but that was essentially what happened with this company. If you're in coffee, you can probably guess who I'm talking about. But I think there there was this idea that this technology company was going to come in, revolutionize the way that we drink coffee through this subscription service, hired a bunch of very qualified folks in the industry with a lot of clout, and then laid off a bunch of them. And now mm-hmm. it's like, wait, like what were you doing this for? Like, Yeah. One of the most controversial posts I've ever written on Expedite was titled Venture Capital is Killing the Restaurant Industry. Yes, talk and- about that more. <laughs> and 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 what I'm what I'm talking about is not the individual VCs and LPs and all of the people with the money. What I'm talking about is the attitude. And what I'm talking about is the massive funding that goes into lifting up a new idea at the beginning and then what happens when that funding goes away. And in the environment that 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 we're in economically at this moment, we're seeing this happen a lot. And what's unfortunately also happening is that when these businesses are losing their funding and they, you know, when these unprofitable businesses are losing their funding and they can no longer go on, many of them don't seem to have much loyalty to the hospitality businesses that they claim to serve. It's almost like when things got hard, they just bailed. And that is the exact opposite of what we saw happen in the restaurant industry during COVID. When things got bad, these people stepped up in a big way. And when the tech industry got bad and I'm sitting in the center of it right now, people are jumping out of the boat. Like I was not surprised, but still like gobsmacked with the reaction. And this is like so inside baseball, but when, when Silicon Valley Bank failed, And it was like all of these people that were telling us that we had to make big bets and take huge risks and, you know, this is the future. And like suddenly the second that the the ground got shaky beneath them, they they bailed. And so that is the, the those are the forces that are behind some of these startups, especially the ones that are built to scale, which is what you need to do to find product market fit, because that's what people want to fund. They want a unicorn. They want a billion dollar return. They or you know, at least a, a good return. Right. And um, unfortunately, that kind of scale and that kind of disruption is 
I guess like, I don't know what to say about it. It's like, it's, it's fickle. It's delicate. It's, it doesn't always happen. And again, the forces. So tech that's trying to scale and make a ton of money and turn huge profits versus restaurants that are inherently not necessarily scalable because they're experienced businesses, or maybe they don't want to scale, or maybe they're happy and they're turning a small profit and they don't want to optimize to, you know, go to 50% or whatever it is. And so the expectations on the hospitality side and the expectations on the tech side are different. And when you smash them together, it can create a lot of problems. That was, right. I don't know if that explained it well. No, no, that, that totally made sense. Cause I go back to this idea of like, what makes coffee shops really special is often that there's like the one that you love or like the one around the corner from you or the one where the baristas know your order. And that's something you cannot scale. Like mm-hmm. that's not that's not how that works in coffee. And I'm always interested in businesses who think they have to grow to be successful. And I think this even goes back to this idea of how to utilize technology more appropriately But growth doesn't always have to look like expansion. Growth does not have to look like I own 19 coffee shops and now I am in a years long, you know, contract negotiation with my unionizing baristas, which is what's happening at Colectivo Coffee here in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. 19 locations, their baristas unionized and they fought that union every step of the way. And it's like, is this like the value that we, we really want to have in coffee? I wonder, maybe this is like kind of like a deeper question than I maybe really intended to go with, but we're getting towards the end, so might as well go with it. But like, it seems like we think of technology and we think of automation as these like big lofty ideas because of tech, because tech is designed to scale. Tech is designed to Mm -hmm. make money. Tech is designed to be Mm -hmm. this like VC, like money-making, ridiculous like cycle. Yep. But really where the power I think of automation and technology could be is just like making your one little small thing better. Mm-hmm. So like, how do we, like, where do we go from here? Because again, like, it's like every time I hear about like tech and, 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 and like a new technology, it's, it's painted in this way because it has to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think what might change, we're in a big reset, so I'm speculating, but I think that we have our expectations, our industry, the world, whatever, our expectations of success have come back down to earth a bit. And that's been a hard pill for a lot of people who have gone big in tech to swallow in the early days. It's normalizing. And along with that normalization comes the normalization of expectations around growth and success and what that looks like. Like The DoorDashes and the Ubers were a fantasy. They were a really, really well-funded fantasy that was like pushed through on hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of investment. I think that's sort of going away. And I think that's because the appetite for that level of disruption is, is going away because people see like what's happening, people, the public like at large. And the other thing that's happening is that as the hospitality technology industry becomes more mature, there are far more specialists. So there are investment firms that invest only in restaurant technology or primarily in restaurant tech. There are, there are billionaires who made their money in DoorDash or Toast or Square that, that understand the hospitality business that want to fund new hospitality businesses. So there's a broader audience for that funding with expectations of what success looks like that are different than expectations of 
big tech, what big tech looks like, what success in big tech looks like. So I see a lot of promise for the future of hospitality tech for those reasons and because of the climate that we're in. And I think that the hospitality business obviously has proven itself time and time and time again, especially during COVID, that it is resilient and that it is open to change and it is open to some level of some level of my brain, just the word flew out of my brain, optimization. The tech industry has proven that, it, or the restaurant industry has proven that it is up for some level of optimization because we're in a hiring crunch. We're in, you know, the labor market, everything is changing and there are people that are interested. So I, I, I feel hopeful about the future given this big crash and given that, that everybody sort of, many people, hopefully the right people were humbled by what has happened over the last six months to a year. So I guess, I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm glad that restaurants aren't going away. So. Yeah, I like that. I like that hopefulness because I think I, I I didn't really understand how pivotal these last like six months to a year have been for redefining our expectations of what technology can do and what we should expect from technology in return. Oh, absolutely. I I live in a I live in a tech household and I I see it happening. My my partner works in technology and. It's it's very different now. It's it's hopeful in the way that like 2009 was hopeful differently. It's it's it feels real again. It feels like we're not all just like raising a bunch of money because we can or flying high because we can or because we have to. It's like does this business work? Can this business make money? Is this business helpful? All of those things have to be answered even now like when investors are looking it's not just enough to have a good idea that might be something someday. You have to prove that it already is something. And that's, that's big progress, in my opinion. Kristen, thank you so much for taking time to join the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was fun. That was Kristen Hawley. She's a writer who publishes Expedite, a newsletter about restaurant technology, which you can subscribe to by going to Expedite. Dot news. Thanks again for listening, you all, and we'll see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, 
share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.